Hi, my name's Sam Breakgear, and this is Brains Bite Back. Since the start of this podcast, I've been working solo as the host of this show. However, I'm very pleased to announce that we have a guest host for today's episode. She's an incredibly talented writer, an extreme podcast enthusiast, and a very good friend of mine, Mags Tanev. And for our special piece, we have Computer Says Lol, with a comedy clip from Camilla Cleese out of The Laugh Factory, discussing what Siri would be like if she was called Simon instead. Disclosure, this episode includes a client of an Espacio portfolio company. A lot of us are under the assumption that your brain is either suited to natural science or humanities and social sciences, and that the two don't intermix well. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to challenge this assumption. Today, I'm speaking to Ganesh Kasari and Brianna Brownell about why data science needs social scientists and how the two disciplines need to work together to further developments in areas such as policymaking and ethical AI. We'll also touch on the value for businesses of adding social scientists to their data science teams, as well as the emergence of social data science as its own discipline. Ganesh Kasari is co-founder and head of analytics at Gramna. Ganesh advises leading enterprises on data science for business outcomes and helps NGOs adopt AI models in their conservation efforts. He is passionate about the confluence of machine learning, information design, and business value, and is on an endeavor to simplify data science to help everyone understand its true potential. He's an industry-recognized speaker in data science and is recognized as a top writer on artificial intelligence on Medium. Brianna Brownell is a data science turned tech entrepreneur, futurist, and innovator. Currently, Brianna is founder and CEO of Pure Strategy AI, a technology company that creates and deploys AI co-workers into the enterprise so employees can make faster data-driven decisions. A frequent keynote speaker, expert, and author, she is known for making highly technical topics accessible to non-experts, as well as leading a thoughtful technical discussion on the science behind AI. Hi, Ganesh. Hi, Brianna. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us, Max. Perfect. I'd like you to both start off telling us a little bit about yourselves and how you kind of came to understand and comprehend the importance of this intersection between data science and social science that we're going to be talking about today. Ganesh, if you'd like to go first, and then Brianna, if you can go after Ganesh. Sure. A quick introduction. I'm a co-founder and head of analytics at Gramna. Gramna is a data science organization. We help companies understand their business better through data stories. We help them use insights from their data to connect them to effective decisions. We use data analytics and data visualization to do that. So those are the uh, the twin focus areas. I'm personally passionate about building data science teams, helping organizations adopt data science, apply it, and also build a culture of data. Um, And on on the second question, in terms of how I started paying attention to this one, so this is a very fascinating intersection. So we've been working with insights analytics for a while. We've been forecasting, predicting factors, stuff like failure of servers, failure of machines, or predicting cash flows and stuff like that. Uh, So usually when you look at these kind of defined problem statements, identification of the potential factors which could influence it could be historical factors, historical prices, historical uh, server attributes. Mostly it's straightforward. When we were working with prediction of churn, uh, employee churn, there were a lot of other factors which came in touch with uh, stuff like even beyond the obvious factors like employee ratings, grades, tenure, pay hike. 
which are pretty obvious and standard. Uh, beyond that, we found out that there were other factors which were really driving or influencing it, stuff like employees' involvement in CSR activities or how much uh, time they spent on these other uh, off activities or the flexibility to do certain things. So we found that some of these factors were really defining it, and that's an area where data scientists were also struggling a bit because this is uh, these are the softer aspects. And that's where we started realizing the influence and the need for humanities and the need for a human aspect in, in data science. Perfect. Yeah, that all sounds so interesting and definitely um, something that we're going to get into later on in the in the podcast. Um, Brianna, how about yourself? Um, I'm Brianna Brownell. I'm a data scientist. I've been uh, in the field for about uh, 10 years or so now. Um, and it's interesting because I've really seen so many changes in the field um, throughout the time that I've been in it. Um, I think at the beginning, there was a lot of focus on the technical aspects of data science and sort of the methodology that people were using to solve some of these interesting social problems. But what I'm seeing now is there's a lot of focus on things like ethics, things like bias, things like trustworthiness of AI systems. So I'm really interested to see how we progress from here and uh, to be able to sort of move from having a focus on the technical aspects of data science to looking at some of these ethical issues that is within it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. It's interesting that you talk about that transition from a previous focus on more technical, well, the technical side of data science, and now people are understanding the implications of AI bias and ethics and things like that. I feel like that transition is kind of representative of perhaps this idea that we are either programmed to have a science brain or a data science brain or a natural science brain, or we are better suited to more humanities and social science, you know, qualitative essay-based subjects and I feel like it's a really common misconception that you're either one or the other and that these two kind of don't intermix. Are these kind of ideas that you come across or misconceptions that you find um, in your field, Brianna? Absolutely. Um, I think because I'm involved in the standardization effort within um, artificial intelligence, what I see is a lot of technical people who are looking at some of these deep philosophical questions about, you know, use of AI systems, how to be an ethical company, a leader in uh, some of these fields. And so I think that for me anyway, a lot of the technical people are focusing on how they can get people who are involved in the social sciences into the field. Whereas I'm not sure that the people on the other side of the fence, uh, the social scientists aren't I don't know, is interested or know that there's such a draw of uh, technology that needs them to comment on it. And so, you know, I, I think that right now it looks like there's a lot of people who are trying to bring people together. There are even a few institutes that have been formed to do just that, to bring people together to talk about some of these challenges, but I think it's really early days. I think that we're gonna see a lot more of it, but the conversations are really just starting to happen. Yeah, definitely. From a social science background myself, yeah, definitely kind of the view that I had myself was that, you know, I'm allergic to numbers, allergic to statistics. I'll leave that to the the math whizzes and the people that kind of 
enjoy and are naturally talented at that kind of thing. And I'll just stick with my social science qualitative research and writing essays and whatnot. But it's definitely becoming more and more apparent that each of these groups need to work together. And that might require kind of getting a base understanding of each other's discipline. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. And I think that in the education field, uh, people are starting to really realize how powerful it can be to combine some of the skills that are needed in each of the different disciplines. So having both technical skills as well as some of the sort of more soft skills or where you're learning about history and philosophy and um, all of those kinds of things. I think that now we're, we're seeing um, a lot of educational programs that are trying to combine these two areas together. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that, you know, as more people get trained in these programs, we're going to have these sort of superstars who are able to look at both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just one point on this note in terms of the roles. Yeah, uh, completely uh, echo what you and uh, Brian are, are talking about. There is less understanding and less awareness about the intersection and on both sides. Even people who get into data science, they don't realize the need for the social sciences and all of these, the, the behavioral aspects. And on the other side, when you talked about, like uh, you, you mentioned about your background, recently I've been talking and writing about this. There are several people who reached out to me. A lot of them are from the, the behavioral economics and, and social sciences psychology background. So uh, one person interestingly mentioned that it's been a challenge. That person has kind of been working on this intersection, but uh, she said that it is uh, difficult to break through the common perceptions that psychology is a lot more than doing just therapy. And, and this person is trained as a psychologist. And, and this person has an understanding of data. And I see a lot of such people, and there's a huge need for these kind of roles in technology organizations, particularly in data science. So I just hope that these disciplines come together more and people on both sides start collaborating a lot more than we see today. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Okay, so I just, I'd like to move on to touching a little bit on some more practical examples of this intersection kind of inaction and the ways that we can see it affecting societies and, and policies. I wanted to ask both of you, how do you think that social scientists and data scientists can best work together in the area of policymaking? For example, the Urban Institute has built a number of models that project what-if scenarios, so changes such as a raise in taxes or changes in different models for health insurance and social security, for example, can be modeled to help policymakers understand their impact before they actually go through with the policies. So by running thousands of these scenarios and analyzing their output, the Urban Institute is able to give lawmakers kind of a menu of policies to choose from with their estimated predictions of outcome. What do you make of this use of AI within policymaking and how do social scientists and data scientists need to work together to make sure this is effective as possible? Um, Ganesh, if you'd like to start and then if Brianna, you would like to comment afterwards. Sure. And that's a pretty fascinating example. It's a classic case of how these disciplines have come together, how they're using uh, not just statistics, but beyond that, machine learning and large volumes of data uh, to come up with large-scale what-if simulation modeling and using a lot of data. So the way I look at it, there are three areas where these two disciplines, and particularly when you talk about policymaking and social science, uh, data science can help. Firstly, uh, it is with data collection and making additional data sets available compared to what researchers have traditionally been using. Today, there's a lot more public data available, which people generally in the discipline, they don't realize that could be uh, obtained. It could be as simple as scraping data to get information, which is, for instance, scrape, scraping court records to get 
additional details about the the cases and to plan for some of these policy making in that area in terms of what interventions are needed or it could be even more sophisticated on uh, as in looking at satellite data satellite maps and trying to get these additional geographical attributes from maps and trying to correlate that with localities so all of these are enriching the data sets and helping with the additional analysis so that's one area a second one is making the insights more consumable using data science uh, today the researchers come up with the mathematical models but ultimately when it has to be presented to the policy maker they can use more of data science specifically data visualization and the storytelling to simplify and put up a persuasive message in terms of how the what are the insights from data and how that can inform the policy the third area is closer to what you mentioned predictions where you use data the machine learning models to come up with either what if simulation like the example you spoke or could be other predictive aspects where you find out what has happened in the past and then project this is likely to happen and if that is a scenario how should policy makers respond is there some certain interventions needed or should they adjust certain things so in summary three areas data collection augmentation really second is making the insights consumable and presenting better and third is modeling and prediction. Yeah, thank you. Those are some some great insights. Brianna, would you like to add any thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I think for me this is uh it really falls uh within a larger trend which is that businesses as well as governments as well as other kinds of organizations are being more data driven so there's more data available to them there's more methods in which you can gain insight from it and that's starting to become the expectation so whereas before you know there are people who were making decisions based on their experience based on sort of their gut reaction to things now i think that people are uh, starting to realize that some of those decisions can be better made by using data and looking at some of those possible scenarios being able to sort of drill down into greater detail to be able to answer some of those difficult questions and so i think that as we get more and more data sources and more and more data literacy in the world i think that there's going to be increased pressure for these kinds of data driven and evidence driven decision making rubrics yeah definitely thank you i think this leads on quite nicely to the next area that i wanted to touch on um so we can see here that across sectors and industries that ai is assisting different organizations and data science teams and making much more effective decision making than they were able to make before and in a lot of ways it's taking the human bias out out of that decision making but we are also witnessing certain biases coming to the forefront in AI such as um, racial or gender bias for example AI use in sensitive areas such as hiring criminal justice and healthcare is definitely growing which is in turn stirring this debate about bias and fairness and i'll just give you a couple of examples here so ProPublica recently found that a criminal justice algorithm used in Broward County, Florida mislabeled African American defendants as high risk at nearly twice the rate as it mislabeled white defendants. And then I'm sure we've all heard of the example of Amazon's hiring algorithm which was found to show bias against women by favoring certain language that was more present on men's resumes. Understandably, Amazon abandoned that algorithm. but this does bring to the forefront a bigger question of how can social scientists and data scientists work together to mitigate this risk of unethical or biased AI. Yeah, so my first question is are we putting too much trust into machines and undervaluing the necessity for human input? 
Um, Ganesh, if you had any thoughts on that. Yes, absolutely. So the answer, uh, Max, is yes, we are putting too much emphasis on the machines. And if we take a step back, there's a lot of conversation around fairness, uh, explainability of algorithms. But one aspect which I think a lot of people miss is that how does it work in the human world? <laughs> we all know that the human world is anything but fair. So all of this bias in, in uh, what we do, how uh, things are done in various places all around the world, there is an inherent bias in how we interact. And if you look at machine learning, they learn and they mimic from past data. So when the, the human uh, actions are biased, the machines just learn that and amplify it many times over. So that is actually the underlying cause for the, the machines going wrong. And like you mentioned in the example, so all of those are, if you look at the training data, that's how certain organizations or the past data is also biased. So now when we talk about machines, how do we fix the bias? Whatever checks and controls we might bring in at a machine learning level, I think that will always fall short. So that brings us to the other part in terms of how do you handle it? But maybe I think I'll, I'll let Brianna talk about this aspect and then I think that's it's an even larger discussion on what are the potential interventions and where we should start. Great. Well, um, what I find really promising about the conversation that we're having about bias and trustworthiness in AI is that we're actually starting to have this conversation. I mean, when I think back, let's say 10 years ago, it wasn't even on people's radar that this was a possible negative effect of some of these decision systems. And so I think that the fact that we are starting to realize how much of a negative effect it can have on people's lives is a really positive thing. And so there's a lot of uh, research that's going into figuring out ways in which we can de-bias data sets, we can make algorithms more fair. And I, I'm really hopeful that that conversation is leading into something that will make all of these decision systems uh, better. And as for do we have too much trust in some of these algorithms, there are definitely many times where I think that the answer is absolutely yes. So there is a, an interesting story in a book by Hannah Fry where she talks about how there was this group of tourists who were following their GPS and um, they tried to drive through a lake in order to get to their destination because the GPS told them that they could go that way. And so it's interesting that sometimes you can have a situation where the algorithm sort of overrules human judgment. And so what I hope is that we're going to be, you know, more and more cognizant of the fact that this can happen within some of the systems that we have set up. So it's going to take a while to figure out exactly how we need to set up something like that within these technology systems. But I do think it's an incredibly important conversation to be having. Absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting example. I can certainly think of a few kind of instances in which people have put too much trust in what a computer says rather than using their own judgment. So Brianna, what would you say would be the role of a social scientist going into a data science team that is using these AI algorithms to help with their decision making, how can a social scientist go in and make sure that bias is being mitigated and that the AI is being used in an ethical way? 
I think that it needs to be part of the sort of planning, sort of the system planning and the system process for every organization. I think within the past five years, we've seen many large organizations move to that model where it's not just get the data, build the model, make some predictions, you know, deploy it that you have that interim step where you look at some of these potential implications of the modeling that you're doing. You're looking at fairness, you're looking at bias, you're looking at brittleness, you're looking at all kinds of different factors that have a social implication. And so what I've seen many companies and organizations do is to put that as part of their normal process and ensure that they are following that every time they're designing a system like like that. And so in my mind, I think that that's basically gonna become best practices and that companies are going to just realize that this is part of the process. You need to have an individual in the organization who are dealing with some of these big questions about the implications of what you're building. Yeah, definitely. Ganesh, would you perhaps have anything to add about the stage at which these companies should think about adding a social scientist to their data science team? And also, what are the repercussions of neglecting to include social scientists in a mature data science team? There's two uh, perspectives, Max. One is uh, on the ethics and fairness aspect earlier. Yes, that's one area where uh, social scientists can help. Connecting back to the uh, the earlier point I was making, that in the in reality, in the human world, we take care of the inherent bias, manually taking some judgmental calls that if certain the representation is not uniform, we probably account for it. And then when we take the next decision, we keep that in mind and then plan accordingly. So that's some amount of a bias to take care of an existing bias. So something like that needs to be built into the machine learning and the workflow. So that's where the human in the loop as a concept is very important, where we bring in, we design the system so that there is an ability to override a certain decision taken by the AI. And uh, we can we have a set of individuals who can come in and uh, Whenever there are certain uh, triggers or in certain scenarios, people can validate and can override it. So for doing that, people from, say, social sciences, arts, humanities background are essential. One is to play this role. And second is to have this conversation going within the team. So that's an area where it can help with, with fairness and ethics. The second area is what we were talking early on in terms of the human aspect of predictive decisions. So wherever you're talking about, say, human purchase decisions or in terms of the other the employee or uh, in terms of other aspects, wherever there's a human aspect involved. So there, social scientists are essential. And in terms of what we would be missing if we don't staff for these roles, I can give a interesting example. So we were working with a telecom company in terms of doing analysis on their products and what was a purchase pattern. And this was in India. So there's a certain kind of an offering where people buy prepaid cards to load talk time. So in addition, like um, before they use it earlier, they, they buy the, the prepaid talk time and then they keep using it and then keep refilling it. So when we were analyzing these kind of prepaid products, they were usually priced like $9, $19, equivalent of that, $9, $19, So we went back and told this organization that these are the products which seem to be selling well. So they said, yes, we already know that. Uh, these are the top selling products. And then we looked at which are the unusual products which sell. Uh, 
there were certain products which were like at $1 and $3 kind of denomination which were selling. And the team said, yes, this is good. This is unusual. But we kind of know it when we looked at the low priced products, they show up as well. So, and then we went back and further did some analysis. What we found actually surprised us. We found that a lot of these products have some peculiar correlations. Whenever this $9 product was selling or the equivalent, there was this $1 product selling well. And then when, when 27 was selling, there was a $3 product selling well. So this puzzled us. There was no commonality in terms of the features within the products in terms of data, talk time, long distance, and so on. So we went back to the, the client and asked them that what could be causing this, our data scientist was stumped. So then after a lot of discussion, we found out that uh, this was something to do with human behavior. So this um, this was, I'm talking about seven, eight years back, where primarily people were dealing with all of this using cash transactions. So people used to pay money over the counter and buy it. So they often didn't have change. So when they pay for a $9 product, they used to pay $10. And they used to buy this $1 product along with that, even though it was not very related to that. So that explains the 1 plus 9, 3 plus 27, and a lot of such uh, decisions. So this has nothing to do with products, features, technical aspects. It was completely to do with human behavior and uh, what is convenient. So we couldn't have discovered this without, one, the, the domain understanding, and second, also someone who can talk through the human aspects. So these kind of insights people would miss if they don't have, they do, don't staff the team beyond the standard, the usual suspects we often hear about. Wow, that's a really interesting example. It definitely shows the value of someone like a behavioral psychologist going into a data science team and helping people interpret their insights in a way that will have real human impact. And in terms of data science teams getting on board with the idea of social scientists coming in and helping them with their insights and with the work that they're doing, what kind of culture change does this require? And how can businesses best encourage their data science teams to adopt a culture of social science as well as data science. Brianna, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. To be honest, I think it's extremely controversial right now. Um, so I, I speak with other data scientists quite frequently who are working on these kinds of issues and having these kinds of challenges within their companies. And there's definitely sort of two camps, people who are divided. So on the one hand, you have individuals who say that it should be the technical people who are adding those ethical skills, those sort of social science skills to their own skill set. And so the primary people that would be dealing with the social aspect of data science would be the very technical folks who are already building the algorithms right now. Then there's sort of another camp who says, this is not my problem, this is not my role, it should be another individual in the company that should handle that, and I should handle just the technical part of the, the data science of the system that I'm building. So. There's definitely not a consensus right now uh, among data scientists, among technologists in general, among really uh, the whole community about how best to structure this within a company. And I think it's really because we're just starting to realize what the implications of having an issue with fairness or bias or those kinds of things, how bad it might be for the company that, you know, that, that has it happen to them. So right now, it's difficult to say what the best way is to be able to create a team that is effective in mitigating some of these issues, because we just have only started 
figuring out um, that we need to do it and, um, you know, what the implications might be. So um, I see it evolving, I guess. Uh, within the next few years, I think that as companies try to figure out how to solve these problems, uh, there will be more learnings about what the best practices might be in these cases. So right now, I don't know if anybody really knows the real answer to that question. Yeah, that's really interesting that you said that there's two distinct camps that you see at the moment. And obviously for teams that are just adding to their own skill set as data scientists and trying to understand the social dynamics as well. The benefit of that is that they don't have to then channel resources into actually hiring social scientists and bring them in. But would you say there are any downsides to simply trying to add to a skill set and becoming perhaps a, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the right way to put it, but trying to become a jack of all trades rather than master of one? Do you see benefit in companies having experts in their fields and then working together rather than one or two people trying to add on everything to their current role? Well, usually, um, you know, data scientists right now, because it's so challenging to hire people into data science roles, being able to find people who not only have the technical skills to be able to create the system that needs to be created, but now you're also trying to find someone who has additional skills in AI ethics and understanding bias and trustworthiness of AI systems. I think that for employers, the the biggest challenge is how do you find that person? How do you get people who, who have both of those skill sets? And, you know, can you devote the time and energy to be able to train people who don't come uh, with that education already throughout their careers? And so both are sort of challenging ways because in the second scenario where you're hiring social scientists into data science teams, now you have to figure out how to make a common language for people to work together in an effective way and to be able to make the entire system better. And so I think that neither way is without challenges. And I think that, you know, as I said, in the coming years, there's going to be a lot more uh, knowledge in the industry of how this can be effectively done. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. We're kind of circling back to something that we touched on at the beginning about the emergence of social data science as a discipline in its own right. And actually, the University of Copenhagen has recently launched a master's program on social data science. Ganesh, what do you make of this specialism? This is a good step. People are noticing this and coming up with a specialization like this would maybe create more people uh, that fall into that intersection. And I haven't looked at this course, but I'm assuming there will be a good mix of courses from both sides of it, where from computing side and in terms of understanding of algorithms, in addition to that, they have some of the, the regular social sciences papers. So that, that could be a good start. However, for organizations in terms of implementing it, right? So uh, while some of these are, we're looking at say maybe four years, five years down the line, this impacting the industry. But for the problem we are facing right now, I think uh, to some extent having cross-killing and adding people across roles might help. I agree with Brianna that this is an evolutionary process. We don't have a perfect solution today. But a good start would be to cross-train existing set of folks. A data science team needs to have several roles, four to five roles in addition to a data scientist. For instance, we have the business analysts, we have the, the machine learning engineers, and we have the designers. So I see that this 
can be an add-on skill for one of these roles. Potentially, it could be the domain specialist because they are interacting with the, the clients and they have a good understanding of the users. Perhaps they can also be trained on how the users think and generally the, the human aspects of it. So that way, they can wear this hat of how they might be taking a decision, how the users might be taking a decision and help the rest of the team with that. Otherwise, if we add it to, say, the technical folks or make it as a long list, already there are a huge list of skills which we expect as a data scientists or any of these technical roles to take. So we really have to spread it amongst the team. But as organizations evolve, assuming we have uh, the, the organization is doing a lot of work in that area, when once they become a much bigger size, there are organizations like Google, Facebook, they hire PhDs in uh, social sciences. They have they hire behavioral scientists. There are they, they have been doing this for several years, like almost like five to ten years. So their motive is in making people click more of the buttons in the apps on Facebook making us spend more time on Facebook and, and click more of those, the like buttons. So that has been the, the task of some of these behavioral uh, specialists in terms of understanding what makes a person to stay back, makes them to stay longer within the application, what kind of feeds, what kind of color of buttons are needed. So they have been doing that. And, and as organizations scale, they will be able to plan for dedicated roles like this. But in the early stages, I think cross-training could be a good start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely seems like from what the both of you are saying is that we're in the very early stages of this intersection in terms of people realizing how necessary it is. And both social scientists and data scientists are like waking up to the fact that they need to work in a more interdisciplinary way. So I just want to finish off by asking you both, what do you think needs to be done to convince the social scientists that there is a place for them in data science and they shouldn't shy away from that discipline and vice versa, what can be done to convince the data scientists that they need to think in terms of social dynamics as well as in terms of raw data and insights? Brianna, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's all about getting the story out because if you think about the conversations that frequently happen, it's sort of the technical folks speaking with other technical folks or people who are involved in social science speaking with other people who are involved in social science. And so really what we want to do is try and figure out ways that we can have people talk with the other group. Because right now, if you look at some of the individuals and some of the groups that are forming, there is a lot of push to do interdisciplinary work. And so I'm hopeful that as these conversations start happening, there will be sort of a spark of interest uh, between the two different sides. Great. Ganesh, did you want to add anything? Uh, I think that's, that's a good idea. More discussions, more collaborations, and, and more forums where we bring people together. That's definitely a way forward. And also taking care of the fear or people sensing that they might be lacking their depth from the social scientist side, people on the social sciences, they have probably they might have uh, a resistance to some aspects of the technology coding aspects in terms of those kind of jobs are not the traditional jobs that uh, people from our discipline go to and vice versa where uh, uh, the computing disciplines they feel that that is not need those skills may not be needed so as long as there are more of these examples and the stories presented to either side that this is the relevance one is data science offers a lot of attractive opportunities roles which people in social sciences can get into more career options that can be a good mot motivation whereas for people on the uh, on the data sciences side just telling them that their solutions will be more bulletproof and more usable if they can use the skill set and get people and collaborate with them i think that will slowly 
start bringing about this change and it will happen eventually. Yeah, a bulletproof solution definitely sounds like a way to win a data scientist over. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to finish. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. It was a great conversation today. Yeah, thank you as well. It was very, uh, it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it uh, a lot. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, likewise, uh, Brianna, and thanks, Max. Computer says, lol. I have to have my phone with me all the time. It's like a security blanket or a panic. Like, I just had a landline installed in my apartment so that I can find my cell phone. Because <laughs> I lose it, like, every 15 minutes. <laughs> Siri's like my best friend. That's the person I talk to most. Do you ever wonder why they made it Siri and not Simon? Right? Like, why is it a girl and not a guy? Uh, and this is why I think, because if it was Simon, you'd be like, hey, Simon, what's the weather like outside? And he'd be like, huh? <laughs> Directions to the Laugh Factory? Yeah, I know how to get there. Did you put it in Google Maps? No, just keep going straight. This looks familiar. Hey, Simon, do I look fat in these pants? The weather outside is 97 degrees. So you're saying it's too hot out for pants? Is that like a passive way of saying I do look fat in these pants? Dialing your mother. Why don't you ask Alexa? I'm like, who's Alexa? Are you talking to someone else? Hey Simon, are you talking to someone else? Hey Simon? And he ghosts and never talks to you again. That's it for today, but thank you as always for listening and you can find all our shows on Spotify. You can follow us there, iTunes, and you can go to sociable.co to stay up to date. You can also stay up to date by subscribing to our newsletter. Every Friday, you'll be updated with a new episode of the podcast and some great articles we have at The Sociable. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Hey.